Well, hey, money lover, do you wish you had a do this next guide with the exact steps for building wealth? Because you can. It's called the seven steps to wealth, and it contains a proven framework and actionable plan to build your confidence and grow your wealth. It starts with step one decide. Decide to take action today by grabbing your free guide at hendershotwealth.com forward slash seven steps. That's hendershot with two T's wealth.com forward slash seven steps. The only cost is what you could lose by not taking control of your financial future. Welcome to the Love Your Money podcast with me, Hillary Hendershot. I'm a wife, mother, certified financial planner, profit first certified professional, and a successful business owner. This show is all about teaching you the methods, models, and mindsets of the truly wealthy. On Love Your Money, we talk about everything to do with your money, including how to improve your relationship to money, how to understand investing, and even how to create more profits in your business. Together, we can turn failure into freedom, fear into love, and dollars into millions. You ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to Love Your Money. Today, I'm speaking with author and financial educator Manisha Takwar, who I first interviewed way back in 2016 for episode 34 of this show. Manisha's new book is called Money Zen, The Secret to Finding Your Enough. She's also the founder of Money Zen, a financial education consultancy. In addition to her latest book, Manisha is the co-author of two additional personal finance books, both focused on women's financial health. Manisha has been featured in the Wall Street Journal, New York Times, Barron's, CNN, all the places. She earned her MBA from Harvard Business School and holds the CFA and CFP designations. Welcome back to Love Your Money, Manisha. Oh, Hillary, it's so good to see you and talk to you. It's great to see you too. Yeah, in your new dig. So we'll talk more about that. So Manisha, everyone's heard the research study that concluded happiness plateaus at $75,000 a year of annual income, right? I was always a little incredulous. Tell us about the follow-up research that has experts like you questioning that conclusion. Yeah, so it's fascinating. Most people rolled their eyes when they heard that number years ago. Obviously, we'd have to inflation adjust it for today. Right. And it turns out those eyeball rolls were correct. That study is wrong. But It's not wrong for the reason we think. It's not because the number is too low. It's because for each of us, there is a level of financial health and stability. The number is different for everyone. But for each of us, there's a number above which increased earnings does not increase our life satisfaction unless those increased earnings come on a base of financial well-being and emotional well-being and physical well-being. And that's the the big eye opener is that well-being, that foundation has to be present for more money to increase life satisfaction. And my impression is you became aware of this contradictory research sort of in the middle of the chronology of your personal search for well-being. So if you want to bake lessons about that in, but I have lots of questions about you and how you found yourself in the cult of never enough and how you got out. So first of all, what is the cult of never enough? I define the cult of never enough as this place, this mindset where you feel like no matter how much you earn, no matter how many achievements you rack up, no matter how many accolades you receive, it's never enough. And you feel like you're never enough. And kind of the corollary to that is, And or you may feel like you've 
you have become subsumed by our modern culture's belief that the answer to anything that ails us is more. Something isn't right, earn more, be more, do more. And so that's how I think of the cult of never enough. And in the book, you talk about how there's part of this that starts with your career journey. But in the book, you talk about how a combination of therapy and what you call small T traumas had sort of captured you into this cult. So can you describe how you found, and forgive me if I'm saying this wrong, but sort of being bullied as a child led to really being a dedicated overachiever? It's not wrong at all. And one of the things (laughs) that I like to highlight about small T traumas, which I define as events that happen to us before age 25, when our brains are fully formed, is that they are things that often in retrospect as an adult, you you might feel, how on earth could that have had such a catastrophic or toxic effect on my life? So I'd like to just walk through this to help people understand. So in my case, I'm a mixed race and I grew up in a small town in Indiana and I didn't fit in. I was chubby, had Coke bottle glasses, Indian women. We often tend to have hair on our upper lip. Not a big deal in India because your moms and your aunties know how to teach you to get it threaded, get it off. But I'm living with an American mom in the Midwest. There are no places to get threaded. And so kids used to call me cow butt, thunder thighs, mustache Mm. mouth. And it was so painful. And this went on from fourth, fifth, sixth grade. I go into more details about it in the book. But let me just say that what happened is I felt so ostracized. I needed to find some place that I belonged. And that place happened to be with my teachers because I was a good student. And so I would feel seen and heard and accepted from them. So as I went through junior high, high school, and so forth, the bullying stopped. But my behavior around seeking uh, acceptance through academics didn't change. Then I stepped into the workplace. And what replaces grades and teachers, money and promotions and accomplishments And so that seemingly small T trauma set me on this journey that ultimately ended up with me having an exceptionally toxic set of beliefs and behaviors around work, money, success, accomplishments. And from my perspective, you all, and I've watched your career evolve a little bit as much as it's been public facing, but you always had a very benevolent, passionate voice. So you know, from the outside looking in, it didn't necessarily look toxic. Anything besides the obvious that sort of characterizes that toxicity for you? Yeah. So there are a couple of key things. One sign that you have a toxic relationship is when you start. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. You start having health problems. I had two very Mm. serious health incidents. Your body often speaks in that way when you are revving it hot all the time. Another is relationships. I'm divorced. My ex-husband, I was never around. I really was a lousy spouse. And my ex-husband is now with somebody who paid the kind of attention to him that I should have. Hmm. Another sign is you're losing friends. One holiday season, I realized the only holiday cards I received were from immediate family and people I paid. My housekeeper, my massage therapist, 
And then the other and most insidious one is that you cannot disengage from work. Even when you are not working, it's filling your head in a way that you feel you are emotionally connected nonstop to the striving, the being busy, the the work. And there's no peace because you're living in the future, not in the present because you're striving. Those are the, in my case, that's exactly what I felt like. And if I had to sum it up with a bow, I would say I felt like I was a human doing and not a human being. Mm. So that's a lot. It's a lot to potentially unravel. Uh, I recall being at points in my life thinking, okay, I know I want to stop this behavior. I just don't know how to stop it or what to replace it with. And I'm sure, and I know from reading the book that you found that kind of the way out and the way out of your cult of enough wasn't something that can be captured by a top five list. (laughs) So standing in that place where you, I mean, uh, was there a particular moment you realized your uh, my brain is just too full of this future stress and anxiety and seeking and striving? And so was it a bright line or was it a process? And tell us a little about, about that. Yeah, it was not a bright line. I so wish it were. In my case, there were two parts to it. One, I was sitting in a meeting with a potential client who was very private about her finances and we were going through a discovery process trying to show her how we worked with clients. And so we used my financials and the team interviewed me as if I were the prospective client and walked through my financial journey. And hmm. you know, we talked about how I borrowed $2,000 from my parents out of undergrad for first and last month's rent. And I paid them back in six months and everything else I had earned, I had earned. And when we ran the Monte Carlo and we're showing how much more I could spend and still have ridiculously low odds of running out of money if I live to 100, I realized mm-hmm. I'd been chasing after this, this financial safety because I didn't ever want to get stuck in a place like I had been in fourth, fifth, sixth grade, so rejected that I mm-hmm. had done it at the expense of actually living. I'd spent 30 years of my adult life trapped on this hamster wheel of hustle culture. And that happened concurrently with a a period where I had an autoimmune issue where quite literally my body was attacking itself to give people a perspective of just how much stress can affect the body in terms of causing inflammation. There's something called a SED rate, measures level of inflammation in your body. Zero to 20 is a healthy range. Above 100 indicates tumor or malignancy. I was at 95 and they tested everything to see, did I have a tumor somewhere? And shockingly, that was from a culmination of years after years after years of working like this insane person. Oh my gosh. And I had red welts all over my body that were painful to touch. My my scalp felt literally like it was on fire. My fever was oh. vacillating between 100 and 103. And that was the effect of an inflamed body. And on top of that, I had Epstein-Barr, which is 
Tomano, which jingles as chicken pox, but my body couldn't fight it off because it was so inflamed. And so to bring a long story to a close, it got to the point where I literally could only stay awake about five or six hours a day. My, my body literally had shut down. Yeah. Against your will, you will stop working. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. And that was the kind of aha combination that I had financial health and I was emotionally and physically bankrupt. And so you say in the book, look, you've got to go back and do, would you call it root cause analysis? I don't want to take the words out of your mouth, but of course I want listeners to be able to apply this to themselves because the answer isn't just quit your job. I mean, it's not that simple, right? And go be a substitute teacher or whatever. And so what's the journey you went through? How did you sort of clamor your way to the surface, if not out of that? (laughs) Hey, money lover, it's Hillary. When I'm not behind the mic here, I'm running Hendershot Wealth Management, a fee-only fiduciary financial advisory firm that works with women and couples who want to take their finances to the next level. That fee-only part is important when it comes to financial advisors because it means there are no kickbacks or incentives built into the advice we give. We succeed only when you succeed. Listen, I've made all the money mistakes in the book, but I've taken myself from nearly $600,000 in debt to a seven-figure net worth, and that's what I want for you too. The wealth, not the debt. If you're ready for financial freedom, let's chat. All of our clients start with an initial no-obligation call, like a meet-cute. Not a formal meeting without a romantic relationship on the other side, just a potentially lucrative one. Your finances are your future, and who you partner with matters. So grab your coffee, and let's get started at HendershotWealth.com forward slash contact. That's Hendershot with two Ts, Wealth.com forward slash contact. And now back to the show. My first job out of business school was uh, as an equity research analyst, and I've always loved research. And so as I'm going through months of bed rest, which is what happened um, after we discovered the, the high level of inflammation, I started thinking, how did this happen to me? How did I get here? I graduated from college with such dreams and hopes for a very different life than the one I ended up with. And credentials, yes. (laughs) And from the outside, yeah, maybe I did look successful. But inside, I I wasn't alive. My my soul Mm. felt dried up and empty. So I went on this two-year journey. And what I discovered was the reason that doing all the things, you know, meditating, doing yoga, writing gratitude lists, those things would help briefly, but they didn't cure me. And the reason was you end up in the cult of never enough, each one of us in different ways, but it's a very multidisciplinary set of effects that cause you to end up in this place. Okay. Briefly speaking, it's it's personal small t traumas, cultural norms, societal expectations, and evolutionary biology. Those are the four big buckets. Everybody has okay. different levels of emphasis in those buckets, but it sure. is unpeeling and understanding 
which of those influences in what combination are leading to this behavior that you have to go through in order to change the behavior. And that was the big aha for me was that you can't just start following three new tips to have work-life balance. You have to (laughs) unravel and you said it perfectly, root cause analysis. I see. Okay. Well, so the good news is there's a way out. The medium news is it does require significant amounts of personal introspection. And so in looking back, do I hear correctly, you spent two years on, I mean, essentially on a personal journey, just was that your full-time activity? I'm trying to figure out for people, if they aren't like you currently fully funded, how can they particleize this or look to the core themes so that it can be at least begun? So I was not doing this full-time. Okay. I have my own business and I also sit yeah, on okay. a couple of boards, Okay, corporate boards. Well, you said you were in bed rest, so I wasn't sure where we are. Oh. We were in the timeline. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. So the research started after the medical leave okay. and the bed rest. But okay. the reason I, I wrote the book was to give people a roadmap for thinking through this. The book is actually quite thin. It's a book you can read in a couple of days. It's not dense at all. But what it does is give you ideas that you can then marinate on for as long as you need to. And likely it's a repetitive kind of process. I put together a reflective journal to go along with the book, which you can download for free on the website, uh, moneyzen.com, so that you can kind of work, have some prompts to work through it. But what I want to emphasize is If you tried to go sit on a hill for two weeks or two months and just figure this out, it's not going to work. It's these insights that will come to you have to come in between your daily normal life experiences. That's when the insights will start popping up. And I'm super curious, for example, I know workaholism is one of the most common things I speak to female entrepreneurs about, right? Most of my conversations with some of my clients end in tears. And it's always like, I, no matter what, I'm not enough. I'm missing something. I'm missing my marriage. I'm missing my kids, or I'm not getting it done at work, right? And there's a s- strong sense of obligation. And you had promises and obligations and contracts with lots of very big we'll say white shoot or big name organizations. Did you cold quit? Have you cold quit? In other words, I know, for example, you're talking to me from a, you described it as a 500 square foot cabin in Maine. So I'm just curious, what were the forks in the road that led to that and that decision? And how are you feeling about that now? I would say it's a very windy road. And what I'm proud of is that I'm still driving on it. And that the things I I learned in the journey now serve as bumper rails on either side of the road Mm -hmm. to keep my car from flipping over uh, like it used to. And so (laughs) it's, it's not like you solve it forever. I can give some examples. So as I'm going through the research for the book and I'm understanding how I ended up, What were the influences 
culturally and societally, and even from an evolutionary biological standpoint on top of, you know, because it's not just one thing. As I unraveled those, and then I was able to slowly replace them with a, a mental framework that we can talk about in a bit, I, by the end of writing the book, felt wonderful, just liberated and as if I could fly, I felt so light. And I made a decision that I was going to, because I work for myself, I can do this because I'm not married and I don't have kids. I can do this. And neither of those things were uh, deliberate or planned. They all happened as a result of the workaholism. So I'm I'm not saying that in a bragging way. I'm saying that- No, it's in okay. A, we all end up yeah. in different places. <laughs> a cautionary tale way that you can wake up at 53 and realize there are a lot of big experiences you didn't experience because you were working. But I decided that I was going to live half the year in Portland, Oregon, and half the year in rural Maine. And it was heavenly Mm -hmm. until I started the marketing of this book. Because with book marketing, your ego gets so wrapped up. And now with likes and views and downloads, there are so many different ways to measure the efficacy of your PR and marketing efforts. And then when you have a hit and you know you get an article published and Fortune or CNBC interviews you, you start to get this, almost this, this I call it an ego high. And then you want more and more. Mm. And, and we know biologically it's a dopamine hit. But what I found is right now, I feel overwhelmed again. And I know I am working too hard on marketing this book. But the good news is I'm able to look at that and I have a North Star now, a framework as a result of my research that I am focusing on and saying, okay, what baby step can I take today to shift myself closer to this healthier state that I want to be in? But I want to emphasize that Life throws stuff at us. And so it's not like you get fixed, but you can learn how Mm -hmm. to self-correct more quickly and more gently. Well, I mean, ultimately, you may have found your navigation system out of the cult, but you're still working with organizations who are smack in it, right? (laughs) To promote and let the world know about your book. So it's, it's a very, it's a sort of interesting meta exercise. Perhaps the foundation of your next book. (laughs) Well, and what you're speaking to, Hillary, is so important because that's part of the cultural norm. We live in a society that encourages us to think of our self-worth as a human as being tightly linked to what we do. And particularly in the workplace, the shift from work being a job to a career to now a calling. Derek Thompson, a writer for The Atlantic, whose work I cannot recommend strongly enough, says we're now worshiping at the altar of workism. Mm. And so as I engage with firms that are helping me promote with the best of intentions, that we're all in this more and more and more is better mindset. And it's really hard Mm -hmm. to disconnect from those cultural norms. 
I sort of see the pursuit for career success as a separate but very related track to the career for a bigger bank account. I mean, they're clearly intertwined, right? And one of the saddest things in my professional career is I, of course, have clients who are wealthy and very wealthy and getting to be wealthy. And I have found that it's not predictive where they are on the financial timeline, their experience of financial freedom or scarcity. And I think to almost comfort myself, I have developed a saying, I do my best to create all the circumstances where you can step into the experience of financial freedom, but you have to take that step, right? And I'm wondering in your in the moment where you ran the Monte Carlo scenario that I'm sure you had run before, like you knew those numbers, right? Is there a sense of, I apologize for sort of, I wasn't planning this question, but I'm wondering your experience of stepping into that experience of enoughness, I'm sure in your writing and interviewing experts for this book and talking with people about the book, you've talked with people about that to them taking that step. It's like, how do you stop that persistent thought pattern that ultimately, if you're a conservative spender, got you to where you are, which is you've built compound returns over decades? How do you then set your mind free? Or what do you know from talking with people? And if I'm wrong and I'm way off topic and this isn't your viewpoint, then tell me. But it just seems like people have to take this leap of believing, this leap of faith. Or just make a decision. I've said a lot. That was a poorly formed question. Have you seen that? (laughs) Yes, I know exactly what you're asking me. And I can tell you what my personal experience is. And I have been surprised on this research journey that It seems to mimic all of the people who I looked up to who had found a healthy way to grow professionally Mm. and personally at the same time. In my case, I started tracking how much I spent in 1992. My dad, who's worked in finance his whole career, back then, you know, there weren't computers, so He showed me how to make a budget on a piece of paper with pencil. And then I transferred that to an Excel spreadsheet. And literally up until the time I started to write the book, I could tell you within probably $500 of accuracy exactly how much I had spent each and every year. Wow. I was so meticulous with my spending. It helped that I had no social life, no hobbies. And when I would have vacation days, most of them I wouldn't use. So it's a little bit easier to save money when you're not doing anything but working. But my point (laughs) is I had the scarcity mindset and it was from fear. It was from terror that I would find myself one day in a situation where I could not get out What I couldn't do was disconnect in my brain or rationally make my brain understand that accumulating more and more and more money is not the answer to that problem. That 
problem or concern is a, a deep emotional one that needs to be explored separately from money. There are money problems, which okay. are things that we solve with intellectual solutions. Questions, how much house can I afford? How do I improve my FICO score? How do I get out right. from this, these student loan debts that are drowning me? But a scarcity mindset and that sort of unwillingness to spend your money because you're so terrified. What I found after running the numbers and realizing I was in a completely fine state of financial health was I had to take a leap of faith. And it was terrifying. And in my case, I started with deciding not to track my spending. And I mean, I literally, I had a pit in my stomach. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. I I can't not do it. (laughs) Because I was terrified that I might live beyond my means. And I think what I want to say is letting go of perfectionism, workaholism, not feeling enoughism. Part of it is an intellectual understanding of how you got there. And part of it is faith that you are enough. And when you let go, you actually will be happier and whatever is meant to come into your life, whatever you're meant to do from that place of happiness will happen as opposed to how we are traditionally hardwired and trained, if you will, by society, which is first you must do this to have that and then you will be happy. And so with the money, flipping it around and saying first, I'm going to be happy and that will lead me to do whatever I need to do to have whatever I'm meant to have to support the happiness. And so you have to just trust in some ways that there is a net under you that if you fall, it will hurt, but you'll bounce back up eventually and you'll learn from it. And we all fall. We all fall. And uh, that particular statement you just said, which is you trust that you are enough and it sort of happens in reverse order is I think very concrete. It's more concrete than I would expect and it's attainable. So I think that's a great place to wrap. I agree. Your book is consumable, easy to read, and it's incredibly charming. And just thank you for the vulnerability in, in the stories you share. So you have a quiz. Should we tell people about the quiz or should we just tell them to buy the book? (laughs) I would say buy the book and please leave an Amazon review if you like it, because I am shocked and amazed at how those drive. It's just like the like buttons. Um, Amazon reviews are like gold to authors. So if, if this appeals to you, please leave one. Okay. But at the same time, if you have a little extra time, go to moneysendquiz.com because it'll help you see how deeply you may be trapped in the cult of never enough. Amazing. Well, thank you for your writing and thank you for leading the way. I appreciate you being on uh, Love Your Money show today. Hillary, thank you for having me. You always ask such fun questions. 
Okay, as we wrap up today's conversation, I do need to review the legal stuff I need to disclose as a fiduciary financial advisor offering wealth management services through my company, Hendershot Wealth Management, LLC. The opinions expressed on Love Your Money are my own and they can change. The content I provide for the show is for general education and it's not intended as specific investment advice, nor do I recommend any specific financial products. I can't guarantee that my statements, opinions, or forecasts are always 100% right. Of course, I wish I could peek into that proverbial crystal ball, but so far, I haven't found it. As you know, past performance is not indicative of future results. I do talk a lot about indexes, and I want you to know that you can't actually buy an index because, of course, when you take a list of companies and create a product that allows people to invest in those companies, there are fees and expenses involved that reduce returns. Remember, all investing involves risk, which, as you know, means you could lose your money. And I have to tell you that there is no guarantee that any investment plan or strategy, including my own, will be successful. And that should keep my lawyers happy. 